The rest of us, if you would, turn in your copy of uh, your God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're a guest here today, we welcome you. If you, uh, this is your first time, we hope you feel welcome. We are continuing study verse by verse. It's our habit, and so you might think, well, I've not been here. I won't know where, what's going on. Anytime the Word of God is taught verse by verse and expounded, you can come away with what the Lord intended for you to get from those verses. So be blessed, be encouraged. And I hope that this has not been your first time in the Word this week. The Lord has intended for you to read His Word every day. I always encourage you to do that and continue to do that. Be in the Word each day. Read through the Word uh, cover to cover each year. That the blessings of that reading will be yours. The understanding, the knowledge of God's will for your life. The Holy Standard before your life. If you don't have a trifold, you can get one in the back. Or if just go on version, as I've told you before. Find a uh, Bible reading calendar. Stay on it. And those blessings will be yours. It'd be analogous to... Um, just coming in on Sunday and studying the Word of God to you taking a big meal on Sunday physically and then saying, okay, I'm good for the week, and that just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way spiritually either, so let me encourage you to be in there. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're in Second Corinthians 10, spiritual warfare as we began chapter 10, coming off of uh, the New Testament standard for giving. We may moved into chapter 10 and really begins Paul operating in enemy territory and individually this, this message marking true and false. We started our, our next, this next section in chapter 10 just last week. We called it Marking True or False in a verse-by-verse study. Paul begins to take on the rebelliousness and, the, and false apostles and, and those that are listening to them. And uh, they had been attacking uh, Paul actively, his leadership style, his right to lead, his attempt and uh, attempted to undermine Paul's doctrine and, uh, that he delivered to the church. And so it's a difficult passage to teach through. It's a difficult passage to hear has a lot of very hard things that we have to look at, but as we work verse by verse, we don't get to skip over parts that we uh, may have more difficulty with. But Paul is addressing the church. He's addressing those who are proffering the error. And as we pointed out last week, we don't know exactly what the errors were. We've certainly seen them throughout the Word of God. If an error is clearly presented, we know what it is. Many have looked at this passage and said, well, what exactly were false teachers teaching? Well, Paul doesn't uh, elucidate that too, too much for us. It doesn't really... Um, matter as much Paul uh, the tack Paul's going to take here to help the church mark truth or error is to point to the life habits and character traits of the ones who are doing the false teaching and also uh, we saw Paul does that here and he also is going to defend himself he's going to defend his own character so the church it will be sure of what he has taught them and then by understanding that truth be able to uh, discern falseness we saw last time that uh, error really has no one identity. Even when you think about well, what's the error, we don't have to actually point it out. Uh, it's not just one thing that keeps popping up. We also pointed out last time that the average non-believer, if you think about people in whatever walk of life they may be, typically look at philosophies, they look at religions, they look at moral ethical standards, and they would probably say, uh, to one extent or another, that there are a lot of options to choose from, that there's a lot of different things, and many of them have merit. And they're, or they all are equally right, or they're all really worshiping the same thing, or any, any number of things. That's, uh, that's what you hear. But that's not true, is it? Uh, from an eternal perspective, there are really only two categories uh, in all of that. There is either right or there's wrong. And there's just a lot of wrong ones, and a lot of them. And, and we saw that, that Satan is a liar, and the father of lies, was that's last time, and a murderer, and his demons follow suit, and They've been telling lies since the beginning, and that's a lot of lies. And they don't care what people believe as long as they don't believe the truth. And they want to make sure that there are enough choices to attract the largest amount of people. So the issue is 
not to get everyone to buy into some single system of falsehood, but to get them to all buy out of the single system. And that's the truth from the Word of God. Because demons and, and Satan are not confused about the reality of God and Jesus. They're not confused about the Holy Spirit. They aren't confused about the only one way of salvation. They're not confused about the truthfulness of God's Word. They've just rebelled against it, and they want everyone else to do that as well. Now, if some of that is unclear, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back, catch up with us on Spotify, catch up with us on Together in the Word uh, on YouTube, and you can catch up with all that. We gave you all those supports, and so I don't want to go through that again. But as we, as we know, we, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, there's only one source of truth, and that's the Bible. And I think it's important to reset to this point. I think it's important to say uh, the source of truth is the Word of God. Because there's a lot of question in the culture for sure, and even, unfortunately, in the church, is the Bible actually the standard? And we would say, yes, it is. And everything that disagrees with the Bible is in error, so we can say that as well. And, and so it's important to know what the Word of God says and then be able to reason the universal truth and principles out of it to combat the falseness that comes along in the form of a high tower or a bulwark. And that's what we looked at in verses 1 through 6, that the world in their falseness shores themselves up, and, and the Bible uses it's a warfare against false bulwarks and false high towers of false knowledge that people feel secure in, and you're to bring the Word of God singularly, and you're ready with it because you understand what it says, and then you're ready to present it when the Lord gives you opportunity, and in your circle, you can do that. And it's interesting when we say the Word of God is, is the authority because just this week, you probably read this, uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, Democratic uh, representative from New York, said, quote, God's will is, no, is of no concern in this Congress as he was being dressed down by a uh, Democrat um, or a Republican uh, representative from Florida. When they began to talk about gender and when it was the Republicans turn to stand up, he said, um, and you can read this, it was on most of the news uh, outlets, uh, Greg Stube from Florida stood up and said, you know, the Word of God says that there are two genders. It says this because this is what's right for humans and this is why it says it and this is why we should be uh, considering that these parts of this that we're trying to push through are wrong and, and of course to that uh, Nadler stood up and said, God's will is, is of no concern to this Congress. And that's not a surprise to us. Uh, but it, it is out in the open now anyway, and it wasn't before, but now it's pretty clear this is where they are. Nobody, nobody, uh, nobody dressed him down from that side of the aisle. So it's important then to realize that even inside the church, we have this falseness that stands up and, and says this is true, and then it's not. And so we need to understand what the Word of God says. And then when the time is right, we can destroy it and take down uh, those high towers and take those defenders captive to Jesus. That's the idea. And so uh, kudos to the ones who were brave enough in that, uh, in that house to say those things. And I think it's interesting as we think about also this dumpster fire that is this legislation called the Equality Act. And I don't normally talk about this too much. If you've been here a while, you know, but uh, politics doesn't normally make its way into our sermons unless it directly interacts with it. And that's what's happening now as we talk about the false high towers that people uh, shore themselves up in. And this Equality Act is, is interesting. It's, um, they've done their best to silence any critics, uh, to do their best to make any resistance, any contrary opinion illegal in, in the wording of if it comes to law. Particularly the Democratic Party has addressed the section of our culture they would consider people of faith. And, and I, I wonder actually what is in their head when they think that, um, because uh, that's unclear to me, considering that many of the very people who promote this legislation consider themselves people of faith. So exactly what's going on in their mind when they think about, you know, let's silence a certain section. And what they've done is that they've removed the protections of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from any opting out in this legislation. And, and 
So what's happening then is that churches and businesses and schools that would not agree with this legislation would have been protected under this other law, will not be protected. And I, as we think about for, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, and the job we have as believers to bring the truth to bear against anything raised up against the knowledge of God, this silencing of any critics really reeks of demonic activity uh, uh, who are actually in control, I think, of many, if not all, of those who are pushing this legislation. They don't want the truth to be heard. And, but another, I think another topic I think is just as important is, th- is this, is that um, as much as I'm glad for this Freedom of Religious, uh, the, the Religious Freedom Protection Act, I think it's time for the church to not just to stop hiding under that in schools too. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we don't have to enforce that here because we're a religious institution and, and we're exempted from it, and then we just kind of sit there and say, that's great. I think it's important that the church understand why it's wrong, not just that we don't have to do it. Do you, do you understand the difference between those two things? Oh, we don't have to do that, so we don't have to worry about it. Actually, we do have to worry about it. Actually, we're supposed to speak the truth. We're able to look at God's word, and like the representative from Florida did um, this week, Stand up and say, actually, that's not true, and this is why it's not true. This is what the Word of God says, and this is why he says it, and, and God's commandments are for our good, and they're not burdensome. And it's important, so we distill that out. Know what the Word of God says. If you're going to be in a spiritual battle, which you're going to be in, either that you opt out and you flee, or you're going to have to stand up, you need to know why you get to opt out and why that's important that everyone else opts out of those things too. Okay? So it's, this intersects what we're talking about and in a major way. So not only is that thought process in the church in a major way, it's, it's obviously in the culture. And so we have to be clear, what does the Word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to us? That's not negotiable, and that is the line. And so it's important, I think, that we reset to that point because it's just that cut and dried. And if it's not that cut and dried, you're going to have a very difficult time then determining what's true if you've, de- if you've denied that the Word of God is singularly true. So... If we start thinking about it this way, then error, then, as we get back to that previous topic, whatever it is or wherever it is, doesn't exist for itself. It exists in whatever form to facilitate an opt-out of the truth. And so it just gets presented in a bunch of different ways, just so you'll opt out of what's true. And and all of that is generated by the father of lies, and and Paul has to identify some errors and lies that have taken up residence in the church and identify those who propagate them. So it has that absolute uh, context, and it has a much greater application as we think about our job in a culture to be salt and light. Now, if you look at verse 7, if you would, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7, we'll be in the Word of God the whole time, so you can have your Bible open or your, or your tablet or your phone, so you can follow along with us. That's very important to do that, so you can see what I'm teaching, and you can see that uh, I'm doing it right, okay? That's your responsibility as well. So, we look at verse 7, Paul begins really by helping the church to know who to trust, so he's going to defend his qualifications and his leadership so the church will trust him. And, and by his qualifications then, this is how we're going to go through this, and I explained this last time, these are the handholds of the passage. As Paul gives his qualifications, uh, these are the things that will verify that the things he teaches from the Word of God are thereby singularly true, and that dismisses anything else that they may hear. So it's easier for him to just say, this is the truth, and, this is, and, and then this is how I've lived my life. So you understand I'm giving you the truth. And this is very helpful, I think, for us, and still important today, obviously. So Paul's defense of, his, of himself, then, as you look at this passage, helps us identify a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry, so that you can say, yes, what I'm hearing is right, and I need to be sticking with this. And so the question is from last week, how do you tell a true messenger of Christ? How do you know? What's the criteria? How do you evaluate them? And we don't have to make anything up. We just kind of see what Paul says, and that becomes that standard. And, and that's really what we're going to see, really starting in verse 7 all the way through verse 18. 
So in verse 7, look there, it says this, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. So as they look at Paul, they're looking at the outside, and he says your problem, you're looking at, your problem is you're looking at things superficially. Your problem, you're looking on the surface from a fleshly point of view. You need to go a little deeper. So their evaluation of Paul is very superficial. So that's where he's going to start. And, and we saw last time uh, the first mark of a faithful leader, the evaluation of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, isn't based on cool clothes and smooth speech. You have to look at the outcome of his life. So when you're hearing, you're sitting in a ministry, you're listening to one on TV, you're listening to one on the radio, whatever, you have to look closely. And, it's just, and, and Paul said, look closely at me. It's the same today. Paul wanted them to remember his own life. Uh, and, and to Timothy, he gave some ways to do that in the church uh, for those who lead the church, elders being appointed in all the churches. How should they be approved? Uh, you know, look closely. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, do his children walk with the Lord? Does he love his wife singularly? Does he reject the love of money? Has a good testimony in the community? Does he avoid the appearance of evil? Is he apt to teach? There's all kinds of things listed there. If you look closely, you realize, you know, if these things are true, then you can believe what's going on there and what's being said. And then he says this, he says in the second part of verse 7, he says, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's. And so he's addressing now those who are false teachers. And he says, if you're confident that you're in Christ, and just like uh, today, these guys are claiming a superior relationship to Jesus, a superior understanding of the ministry of Jesus, but it was the false teacher's own personal opinion, his own personal claim. You know, there's no record of ministry. There's no record of the fruit of ministry like there was with Paul. Uh, there was no record of a Damascus Road experience. There's no record of personal communion with Jesus Christ and, and no people to testify of the reality of that fact for these false people. There were believers everywhere, though, who could uh, testify in churches, who could testify and speak to the validity of Paul being in Christ. So the false teacher will say, you know, I'm Christ. And then you ask him why. He says, you know, because I said so. Uh, I'm a person of faith. Well, why? Because I said I'm a person of faith. Well, what's that mean? Well, you can look closer and see that doesn't really mean anything. They're confident in themselves, claiming it for themselves. Paul just says, you know, um, if anyone's confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider again within himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. In other words, he says, if you can figure it out for yourself, you think you're in Christ, you should be able to figure out that we have that standing too. Because it's just like today, whatever they're claiming for themselves, they're disclaiming for Paul True messengers of God walk with Jesus, and, and it's not something uh, that, they, that you see from a distance. It's something they just say from their mouth. You can get close enough to see that. They walk with Christ, and their intimacy with him is clearly seen in their lives and in their impact and in their effort. And then verse 8, look there if you would. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. And that's the second mark of a faithful leader. The evaluation of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, again, isn't based on cool, close, smooth speech and what he says about himself. It should be based on his impact in the church over the long haul. Because that word building you up, oikodomen, that noun we usually translate edify, I've edified you over the course of my time with you. He's saying very simply, if I'm forced to having to defend myself further, which he hates to do, and boast somewhat further about the authority that I have among you, he didn't like to talk about that. He only wanted to say what he needed to say. But he's saying if because of this debate and my need to defend myself and show you who I am by my life habits, I'll never be put to shame. I'm not going to have to eat crow here because I have edified you. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have to do hard things. It just means that the outcome of my ministry, he says, with you is you've grown in your faith and in sanctification. You have evidence of your own life that you've grown. The church has been strengthened. 
It's grown spiritually. It's more sound than it used to be. It identifies sin better. It desires more purity. It desires more unity. So you can just add those things on. As the church is supposed to be, those are the things that have happened. And the last part of the verse, it says, building you up, and here it is, not for destroying you, I'll not be put to shame. And, and Paul says then, still now, as it was then, false teachers tear up the church. And it, just, it's the same word destroying that we saw before, where a believer is armed with the word of God and is able to destroy high towers. Here, he's just referring to those who just tear down the church. They bring confusing, divisive, destructive effects. Their influence in the church is contrary to the purposes of Christ, who said, I'll build my church. Believe me, the Lord's messengers don't destroy the church, they build it. And so Paul says, just listen, you, you can see that very clearly. And then verse 9, look there, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. And here's where we stopped last time, and I want to take a few minutes with this, because this is a very confusing issue in the church, even now, about exactly how is the Word of God supposed to be used, because false teachers, progressives, will tell you the Word of God's not supposed to be used as a club. You can't use the Word of God uh, to beat people with it. You can't say, this is what the Word of God says, you have to conform, because, you know, progressives would say, we can't possibly know what God intended with all of this. And so we've got to keep changing, you know, changing the inline. This is not how it's supposed to be. Verse 9 says, I don't want to wish, I don't not wish to seem as if I would terrify you, he says, with my letters. So Mark, uh, the, the third mark of a faithful leader is this. Uh, the evaluation of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness isn't based on cool, close, smooth speech, what he says about himself. It should be based on his care for the people. And we, knew Paul, we know Paul cares for the people. It's just they, have had, they begin to interpret it a little differently. Uh, Paul loved the people he ministered to. He didn't want them to think that he was trying to bully them. Uh, he, didn't want, he wasn't abusing his authority as a minister. Uh, on the one hand, they, they needed to be concerned about perverting the gospel. And they should be concerned about the lack of discernment concerning false teachers. Paul has to convey the seriousness of those missteps and many others that we've studied. So if you remember, and just, just to illustrate this a little bit, because the Bible explains the Bible, 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, and we've looked at this before. I'll just remind you a little bit of what he says here, because this is, you know, when they say to Paul, he tries to terrify us with his letters. Well, what letters are we talking about? Well, let's just look at some we've already looked at and ones they've already seen and and in first corinthians eleven sixteen, 16 he's he's taking them to task about how the church service looks on a typical sunday and this happened quite a bit in first corinthians uh, the order of the family between husband and wife and the and the authority there and they'd mess that up and and tarnish their testimony in the community and paul finishes with that and he corrects all of that and then he says this he says verse 16 but if one is inclined to be contentious in other words after i got through saying all this you want to argue with me about that, we have, he says, no other practice, nor have the churches of God. In other words, you're all on your own here, okay? If you think that this is just local and, and we get to do this and it's not a big problem, realize this is what I teach to everybody. This is the standard for everybody, okay? So you're bringing your argument, and that's a moot point. Verse 17 says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. In fact, that I have to talk about this with you is a shame because you come together, and mark this, a very strong language, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He says to the church in this situation and the way they're managing this, it's not helping you to be together. It's making it worse for everyone. Paul says the way you're managing this service in your headstrong way is not edifying anybody. And those are super strong words, aren't they? Now, here's the question. Is that terrifying? No. Could it be interpreted that way? Of course. And that's probably what some false teachers were saying. And, they, and the contentious were saying. And they still say it now. The typical response of a false teacher, oh, they shouldn't be trying to scare you with the word of God. 
If I've heard that once, I've heard that a dozen times from false teachers. Christianity isn't about that. It's about feeling good about yourself and about that God loves you. That's, about what, that's what Christianity is about. God's word wasn't intended to be uh, a club. It wasn't intended to be used on the offense. Well, I, I have a problem with that because I think that's precisely what Paul has to do from time to time. But you can build a really big church if you say that. See, the word of God is not supposed to convict you. It's not supposed to make you feel badly. We don't even really know what God intended about that. We just love is love. And, you know, you just kind of pile it on. Once you've dis- discounted all of that, you just put on there whatever you want to put on there. See, Paul says no. And then just a few verses later in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, he tells them how they've messed up the fellowship dinner and communion. And that's what he's addressing. And, and it, it, they've made it all about selfishness and about self-centeredness and, and all of those things. And, and these are meals that are to reflect communion and fellowship with one another, and, and they're to seek communion and fellowship with Jesus. And Paul has this to say, and mark the language, he says, what? Verse 22 says, what, what in the world is going on here? How is this even possible? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you, not des- uh, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Again, you know, doing it the way you're doing it, Paul says, it'd be better if you just stayed, what, home. Don't you have houses that you can do this in? Why are you doing it here? You're not accomplishing eternal things. You're not reflecting the mind of the Father, see? Now, is that terrifying? No. But again, that's what they're saying. But from that mindset, if you think about every exhortation, if you think about every correction, and that has to be terrifying or somehow using the word of God and misusing it, then the elder would never be able to read the Bible and apply it. Would he? Would you as a teacher be able to read to your class or your small group and be able to say, this is the word of the Lord, and, and you know, people would feel badly about it because they're not doing it, and then they have to conform? Isn't that what the word of God is supposed to do? But they say Paul's terrifying us. See? So you realize it just takes the power out of the word of God and takes the, takes the, the uh, integrity from Paul. Now, in verse 27, and we read this often when we take communion because it's important to remember. This kind of flows out of these previous two passages we looked at. He says in verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, if you want to argue with me about this, just realize that you're guilty. If you're doing this, you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You share in the sins of those who crucified Jesus. That's a pretty serious accusation. Verse 28 says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So Paul just says this, listen, keep, keep it up, and, and that's where you're headed, and it's already happening among you, and you can possibly identify it around you. You just keep up with this selfishness and self-centeredness and this lack of unity inside the body and doing this the wrong way, and you're just headed for judgment. Is that terrifying? Well, here's another question. Is the judgment of God terrifying? And if you're not sure about the answer to that, then I would say it's one of two things. Either you think God's a cosmic grandpa that doesn't have any fault with anybody, or you don't understand how serious sin is, because the Bible's full of those types of understandings, see? You know, we say this often, it's been a while though, does God have the right to deal with you however he wants concerning your sin? He does, doesn't he? Is that terrifying? That should be. You know, we, we understand from John that the Lord desires our obedience out of love. He wants our response to be from love. And we understand that if we've raised children, right? When, you, when your children are little 
and they disobey the rules you've laid down for them, you spank them in love, and you, under, you may help them understand what the infraction, but that's very clear biblical instruction for us and how we raise our children. And as they grow, and you've spanked them, and then when they move out of that area of spanking, and they're, now they're uh, moving to young adulthood and adulthood, you want them to respond to you in love, don't you? But you've established the baseline, didn't you? And when they're you know, just out of the spanking era, they remember what that's like. That's a little terrifying to them, isn't it? Um, not because you were abusive, but because that's pain. And, you know, when you disobey, there's pain. And that's a reality of the world, isn't it? When you disobey uh, what you're supposed to do, there's pain connected with it. So you're just giving them an understanding, but you're helping bring them into subjection to you. And eventually they'll come into subjection to the Lord. But that basis of your ability to deal with their sin in the correct way uh, helps form their understanding of what it means to obey and how to respond to you in love. And the Lord wants us to respond to him in love as well. But when it comes right down to it, he has the right to deal with us in our sin however he wants. As Paul just illustrated for us, if you want to keep this up in the church, just remember some are weak and sick and a number sleep. And then it says later, it says, but even if you are judged by the Lord, it shows that you're his children. So if he takes an interest in your disobedience and brings chastening on you to bring you into obedience, that should encourage you too, even in the difficult times. It's a very consistent biblical uh, doctrine. We've seen that over and over again. We don't have to go through it. So Paul's not trying to manipulate them. He's warning them of God's judgment. And he wants them to respond in the correct way. And that's not terrifying. Later in our study in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, where he is going to communicate with the church again, he says this to them and really communicates his real heart for them. He says, I most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. He's perfectly fine with being poured out in the ministry that is, is being poured out in Corinth. He's fine with that. He, he realizes his life is for that. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? In other words, if I'm doing the hard things and bringing the hard things to you and loving you in that way, pouring myself out and enduring all the stuff that has to go through, and I'm, and I'm expressing my love to you, and then your response back to me is that, oh, he's just trying to terrify us and, and all of that. All this time, verse 19, he says, you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. And I'm not defending myself, Paul says. You know, I'm not trying to terrify you. What am I doing? Well, actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So everything Paul says that he said and done for their edification, like we saw last week, is for their good. And he's doing it so that they can grow. And he's even willing to do the hard parts and pour himself out because he wants to see them grow and he loves them. And I think the text indicates that the majority of the believers in the church realize that. As we saw earlier, it's just some, right, Paul has to deal with, as, as we saw in, in, uh, in the first six verses. It's just some that are causing the problems. Most of the Corinthians appreciate that the apostles' writings are helpful and that he never fails to answer questions when they're put to him. You know, we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 a long time ago. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So we don't have that letter that came from Corinth to Paul, but we know that one came because he says, I'm going to answer some questions about what you wrote. And when you read after that, it's kind of like listening to somebody talk on their cell phone. You don't know what's being said in their ear, but when you hear what they say back, you can kind of figure out what's being asked or what's being said. And that's what we do when we look at this passage. But I think it's indicative that they wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't helpful. So the majority of the church is not saying Paul's trying to terrify us when he corrects us. It's just a small remnant being informed by the contentious and the false teachers that are still in that camp. And this is the one, these are the ones Paul's addressing because he's not content with them kicking the ministry apart over and over again with their uh, bad attitude. So the rest of them know this heart, his heart, how Paul uh, writes and, 
and why he does what he does. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 2.4 affirms that. He says, he says, um, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. So how did Paul go about his writing? Was it just like, okay, now I'm, gonna, now I'm really going to lay into him because I really want him to knuckle under me. I'm tired of this nonsense and, you know, I'm the boss. And is that the attitude you get here? Not. I wrote with affliction. I wrote with anguish of heart. I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful. So my intent wasn't for your sorrow, so somehow I could bully you. But that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. When he writes difficult things, it's because he loves them. When he writes, he always affirms his love for the church. And the things that he says is for their good, see. But the contentious say he's just trying to terrify. Ekphobian is that word. That is um, where we get our word phobia. The contentious would just say, you know, Paul is trying to create a dread, an inner fear so he can manipulate us. Paul's just being biblical about correcting error. Of course, some would say, you know, he's just, he just wants everybody to be in dread of him. And those few who were saying that then are still found in churches now. And, and any correcting that's done is interpreted incorrectly. And so um, we still have that idea. Well, you, you know, we shouldn't come out feeling badly. Remember back in chapter 7 and verse 9 of 2 Corinthians as Paul has addressed some issues in his sorrowful letter, which we don't have. But in verse 9, it says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, so I'm not glad that you were unhappy, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? What's it say? It had to be sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So whose will was it that they be sorrowful after Paul wrote? The Lord wanted them to be sorry. For what? Their sin. He wanted them to see their sin for what it really was. And he wanted them to turn from it and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this anymore. So that you might not, and mark it, this is so, this is so intriguing to me. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. What was, what was one of the motivations that Paul had as an elder in the church, a minister? He wanted to make sure that he was as effective as he could possibly be and as thorough so there wouldn't be any loss on their part. How would there be loss on their part? Well, walking in sinfulness, which causes the Lord to have to, have to punish, right, and chasten. And, and just the, in general, sinfulness, which brings its own reward many times. And so Paul wanted, we didn't want them to suffer any loss. And, you know, if you think about it, a lot of times you see that in the church. You know, just certain people, they will not rein their life in. They, they call themselves believers, but they won't do what the Lord wants them to do. They won't follow uh, the, the, the guidance that comes from the Word of God. They just live in, in opposite of, of those, most of those things. And their life is just one disaster after another, right? It's a financial disaster. It's health disasters. And I want you to think about this from the outside looking in. Is that a good testimony to the Lord? For somebody who calls himself a believer, and then they, then they don't really live a lot different from the world, and then they're constantly under the Lord's chastening. And and if you're in the, if you're in the world, I mean, it's logical for you to look at this person and say, "Man, what? They're a Christian. You'd think it, you know, the Lord take better care of them than that. I mean, they've got one problem after another, right? That's a bad testimony, isn't it? It's a continuous, just one disaster after another. And they're like, you know, and they don't live a lot differently than me. What's the point of being a Christian? We see that in in Paul's used that as an illustration numerous times. So. You realize Paul doesn't want them to suffer loss in anything through us. So by his omission of saying things he should say or being slack and addressing the issues in the church, he's not trying to, you know, 
spare them by doing that. That's irresponsible if he did that. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. In other words, when you're sorrowful, when you see your sin, you're sorrowful for it and you repent. There's no getting to the end of that saying, well, that was a waste of time. Sorry, I wasted all my time doing that, feeling badly about that, right? There's sorrow without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And, you know, it's God's will that, that he's teaching the word of God that will sometimes make people sorrowful. And the letter that he wrote was so firm and so confrontive, it revealed their sin of rebellion against him, against the truth, and they actually repented. And they responded to that firmness by their godly sorrow, and his goal was not to terrify them then. It was to bring them to repentance. He's not trying to control them with fear or for the fulfillment of his own purposes. He wanted to bring them blessing and truth. And he didn't want them, like we said, to suffer any kind of loss in their walk with the Lord through chastening that the Lord might have to bring because of their unrepentance, which we saw just a second ago in Second uh, Corinthians 11. So that was his motive. Obviously, he did that correctly. And, and I, he, if Paul could speak he, now, he'd say, you know, I found no joy in their sorrow. I found no joy in their discomfort. I only found joy in the repentance and the gladness that came from that. And that's what we find joy in now. And so Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is a passage I was looking for last week. We ran out of time, and I wanted to read it to you. This is one I go, I go to often uh, from just to kind of reset. Um, those who, those who, have, who lead the church, those who are in positions as a minister, as an elder, this is addressed to them. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter's talking. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So who, who's the passage addressed to? Those who serve as elders, okay? So we understand the limited audience here. And, and then he says, he says this. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. In, in other words, do the work of an under-shepherd. So feed and water and bind up and chase down and rescue and all the things that are connected to an agrarian illustration of shepherding. And then he says, exercising oversight. And, and those, are two, those two words are one word in the Greek. It's a compound verb. It's episkopeo. Epi is, is to look, and skopeo is to consider a decision. So the second admonition here from Peter, the first one is, you know, shepherd the flock of God. The second one is look and make decisions. So there's, there's, you have charge over the flock. You have to make decisions concerning uh, its, its direction and all that kind of thing. And then it says, it gives some qualifiers. It says, not under compulsion, so not because you have to, but voluntarily, so because you want to, according to the will of God. And now, before we get to that, it's interesting. These are the things that if you shepherd, you have to consider all the time. I, am I here because I have to be here? Or am I here because I really want to be here? And sometimes that's a hard thing to, to parse out. So, especially during difficult times. And so this is a reset. You have to be here because you want to be. And so that's an attitude problem with, this, with the shepherd, under shepherd, isn't it? Be here because you want to be here. Not because you have to be here, according to the will of God. And, and we know this in general, as we think about ministry in general, it applies to those who under-shepherd too. That's how God wants it to be. He always wants a volitional, intentional, joyful type of ministry. He doesn't want a compulsory type of ministry. Remember, God loves a cheerful... Right, so he wants people to come and volitionally respond 
and do ministry. We saw in Romans 12 that he wants an excitement, an investment in ministry. It's not just because you're just kind of plodding through it, but you, you're excited about being involved and you want to give away yourself and be expended for the use of the gospel. And that's the attitude he wants. no different from those, uh, for those who, elder, who are elders and, and uh, lead the church. Then he says this, another qualifier, and not for sordid gain. In other words, not because you're greedy for money, but with eagerness, so you're happy to do it. There's a readiness. Mark this. Uh, and, and these are, are some of our passages that connect to what we were just looking at. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. In other words, you're ex- exercising a dominion. You're bringing into subjection, telling people to do things, but you're not doing them yourself. You're not supposed to do it that way. See? But proving, he says, to be examples to the flock. And we see the same words from Jesus, and this really qualifies what Peter's saying. As he is talking, he's pulling the disciples to himself, and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, and here's our word, lord it over them. In other words, and, and, and their great men exercise authority. And those are similar words which mean to wield power, to have dominion. Now mark this, verse 26. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? What's it say? Well, that needs to be canceled, right? Because we don't like servants in this culture. But you're going to be even more concerned about this word if that's an issue that you have. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your. That's the attitude that you have to bring to leadership. How do we know that? Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is precisely what Peter is talking about when he says, don't lord it over those who are allotted to your charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. And that describes Paul's ministry among the church in Corinth. See, taking it from the kitchen and bringing it to the table and not messing it up. That's what an underroar looks like. And we looked at that, right? And so false teachers, they're personally absorbed, selfish don't have time for people because you don't serve anybody except themselves. People don't mean anything to them except as a means to their own ends. See, so that's a huge difference between the two. 2 Corinthians 10.10. Look back at our passage now as we kind of shored up that understanding. And I think it's important as we think about, so what is, what's the scripture used for? Is it every time it's difficult, is that t- trying to terrify somebody? Are you misusing it because you say the word of God says this, so you shouldn't be doing that? See, I think we put that to rest. That's not terrifying. That's how the word of God was designed. God's God's um, commands are for us and not for him. Remember, we say that all the time. God's commands are for us and not for him. If it says for us to do it, and we don't turn around and say, oh, God, you know, help me to do this. You, you are going to need his help through the Holy Spirit, but you are also supposed to respond volitionally and do it, see? And so it's not terrifying to say this is wrong and you need to fix it. It is, of course, uh, incorrect in our current culture, but that doesn't mean it's changed at all here. Now look at verse 10. And then he pushes more of their words to them. So this is interesting. Um, Uh, this passage is incredible. He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Now, remember, Paul's not in Corinth. He's writing this letter. This is going to go before he gets there. So someone has obviously come and told him that people are gossiping about them. Now, about him. Now, I want you to think about that. The last time somebody said something bad about you and you didn't know about it and then somebody else came and informed you. And the more personal it is, the more ugly it is for you, Right? It's not fun to hear people criticize you behind your back and have somebody kind of tell. But this is precisely the situation Paul's in. And he's not coming with a hangdog look and saying, you know, you know, making him feel bad about him or whatever, you know. Um, 
and this is a cruel and it's an unkind running commentary they had of Paul. But I think that we can pull a point from it, and here it is. This is the fourth mark of a faithful leader. If you evaluate his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, it can really be based on his lack of concern for worldly methods and worldly approval. And, and we'll see that in just a minute. It, he wasn't the least concerned about the criticism. How do we know that? Well, he could have said to that, hey, I'm a great speaker. You know, if you just track with me a little bit, you'd appreciate it a lot more. Step it up a little bit, and you can, you know, if you've taught as a professor somewhere, as a teacher, you know, you want you see glazed eyes, you know, and you're like, come on, this is great. Paul didn't do that. I was powerful there. You should have listened. Those are powerful sermons. We know Paul preached one time all night. Some dude fell asleep, fell out of the window. Paul had to go down and, you know, revive him. So he wasn't riveting. But he's not saying that, is he? He's not defending himself. Why? Because he didn't care. And they start this way. They say, his letters are weighty and strong. Honestly, they could hardly say anything else, could they? I mean, that was so obvious. I mean, they tried to discredit him by putting it out there that, you know, he's trying to terrify the church, and we looked at that. But what was undeniable to anybody who reads Paul's letters, including now, is they're powerful and they're important. And, and the clarity of his writing and, and the rationality of his writing and the spirituality of his writing and the accuracy of his writing, it's absolutely unarguable. They could hardly say anything else about that. You know, they're powerful, they're important, and, and, and the power of the truth came with force, and it came with conviction through his letters, and, and they were right about it. They, you know, they didn't try to deny that because that was just obvious. But after they finish that first comment, you know, then they're going to do two really hard jabs, and we're going to see these right now. So they think they're going to undermine him with this one. They're gonna, they have to obviously acknowledge his letters are powerful. But they take a real personal dig at him, and they said, but his personal presence is unimpressive. What do they mean by that? Well, are they talking about his looks? I mean, is, are they saying, you know, this dude is ugly. You know, he's homely. It's a distraction. You know, well, it's, it's interesting. We, we, have some, we have some information on that. The New Testament doesn't give us much information about the physical appearance of Paul other than just a few things we can speculate concerning his health and his eyesight, and we'll get to those. But there are a few extra-biblical texts and, and these are texts that were excluded from the canon of Scripture because they're apocryphal, but they contain some things that we can read that perhaps can help us. Uh, one of them is called The Acts of Paul. That's an apocryphal book, and in that he is described as, quote, a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting in the middle and a nose somewhat hooked with a red floored face, end quote. That's how they described it. In the history of, uh, of contending of St. Paul, another apocryphal book, his countenance is described as, quote, ruddy with the ruddiness of the skin of the pomegranate, end quote. The Acts of St. Peter confirms that Paul had, quote, a bald and shining head with red hair. Chrysostom, an important early church father from Antioch who, uh, who served as Archbishop of Constantinople, so it's quite a bit later, he records that Paul's stature was, quote, um, low, his body crooked, and his head bald. He's described by Lucian in a work of fiction called Philopatris. He describes Paul as, quote, small, contracted, crooked, and of three cubits, so about four foot six. Now, when you read those, you realize they were excluded for a number of reasons, but, and we don't know if they're accurate. And, and just the fact that they agree with each other, again, doesn't 
make them accurate. They could have borrowed from one of them and just propagated it through all of them. We don't know that. But these let us know what he perhaps looked like. But here's the thing. If you take that and then you combine it with his personal presence is unimpressive, you might imagine that they're not far off. Because, of course, the Corinthian church, these few who are causing trouble, they're very cruel. And so I would imagine that they don't think he's an imposing figure physically. They're certainly implying that he wasn't anything to look at. And, and it appears that they're referring to his persona, too, his demeanor. And he just lacked the kind of electricity and charisma and personal charm that commanded attention and, and commanded respect and drew people to him. He didn't have that. And, and they think this is a cutting criticism. To them, this is a fatal flaw. He is nothing to look at. He is so unimpressive. And so they attacked his fleshly shortcomings. And then they went on from that to his speech. He says, um, they say his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So, man, that's, that's really nasty too, huh? This dude can't put together a sentence. He apparently can, if you read his writing. His sentences are sometimes two paragraphs long. If you've studied any of that, you realize he knows how to write compound, complex sentences, okay? So, Paul, but when he's speaking, you, he's no orator, okay? I mean... Where's the compelling, or, uh, compelling oratory? I mean, you know, where's the impressive rhetoric, the three points in a poem? That's my jab at modern homiletics. You've got to make sure you have a poem, and it's nice if you have a hymn in there, too. If you say those two things, I mean, those are good. Draw people in, you know. Um, where's the alliterated points? You know, if you alliterate your points, obviously you are super great orator. And I tell you all the time, if I alliterate a point, it's accidental. Okay, uh, first of all, I'm not that smart. And secondly, I'm not taking that much time with a thesaurus to make sure I get all of them starting with the same letter, okay? Or have them all start with a letter that spells a word. Not happening, okay? But where is that, see? Where's the cool modern idioms and the catchy sayings and, and the cultural stuff? Bill and I have a joke. We listened to a, a speaker one time a couple years ago, and he was trying to use all these cool youth kind of things. It came off so cheesy. In fact, most of our kids never even heard of it, and he was acting like this is the main deal. And he just undermined everything. I don't even remember anything he said, just that. That was like, oh, what? Paul's not concerned about any of those things. And see, he's dealing with Greeks, and here's the deal. They were enamored with that kind of stuff. Remember in Athens when Paul went, and he said that, and they let him talk to them, and they said, you know, let this, let him come back tomorrow and tell, tell us more about this. And then he made this commentary in Athens. He said, everybody just stood around waiting for somebody to stand up and talk about some certain thing. They just couldn't wait for somebody to talk about something. And the more, the more an order they were, the more they presented themselves well, the more people were enamored by it. If it was a great poem or if it was, a, it was some kind of narrative about some history, they just loved that kind of stuff, see? And the better you were at it, the sharper you were dressed, and the, the better you could communicate it, and all, that, all the better. You must really be something, see? Paul's not concerned about those things at all. He's not concerned about looking good. He doesn't care about dressing and acting the part of a leader, right? He doesn't care about eloquence and rhetoric and verbal dramas. He, he's not going to manipulate people with words. And so he, he really fails to fulfill their picture as a leader. And he couldn't care less about that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he was pretty clear about this when he came to them he says when i came to you brother remember this he says i did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom he's going to tell him what he was concerned about but it wasn't those two things proclaiming to you the testimony of god so i didn't bring all this stuff this flowery speech and this great rhetoric and and you know just 
coming across as a real authoritative. For I determined, in other words, I, I decided beforehand, before I ever came, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is an educated guy. He knew a lot of other stuff, no doubt. But this is the only thing he was going to know because he knew their, their attraction to those kinds of things. And what did he know would happen if they were attracted to that? Then the power wouldn't be in the, in, in the gospel and in the, in the word of God. It would be in how he presented it and what he said. See, I'm going to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. He just describes how he came. He was worried he was going to be a stumbling block to the actual understanding of the truth that was really going to make a difference in the lives of those who were going to hear. See? And my message and my preaching were not in per- persuasive words of wisdom, but in, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? The power of God. He didn't care about worldly methods and worldly dress and worldly approval. This is what he cared about. Their evaluation of him was a badge of he proudly wore. His speech is contemptible. He's not very impressive to look at either. Great. That's precisely what I'd like you to remember. And that hasn't changed much today, beloved. You know, watch false teachers. Style, eloquence, slick personalities, fancy lifestyles, great clothes. You know, an air of superiority. It's the same all the way across the board. Church has always had to endure these big, self-important, self-enamored stars with their polished tongues, and their, uh, they draw people with their slick personalities and move them with their manipulating words and their cool stage and their cool lighting and all that, and that's no power in any of that stuff, see? But people are enamored by that. This false teacher here in Lynchburg, and, and sometimes I talk to people, why do you go there? Well, he says weird stuff, but I really like, you know, I like the dark and the environment and the band and everything. He says weird stuff, but you're still going there because you like, you like the environment? You like because it's cool? And this is precisely, this, this describes the modern church, beloved. And I'm not saying you should come up here and speak in monotone like Jonathan Edwards, okay? But if you did, would the word of God be any less powerful? I heard a speaker one time say, you know, if we lost all the lights, and this is in the summertime, and the air conditioning, and we're sitting in here with no windows open and it is hot, would the word of God still be enough to keep your attention? That's a great question to ask, isn't it? Without the cool band and the cool stage and the cool clothes and everything else, would it be okay? Would the word of God be enough? Because that's exactly what Paul just got through saying. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I did not give you a very impressive figure of myself. See, Paul's a Paul wasn't like that, and neither is a true messenger. He opens his mouth, beloved, listen, and the word of God is spoken in undistracted simplicity. Beloved, if you teach here, you teach somewhere else, you teach the word of God, open your mouth and give the word of God in undistracted simplicity. Let the power be through that word of God in the lives of people. It's the only thing that's going to make any difference in their life. Don't don't try to spruce it up. Don't think you're going to help it with your little antidotes and your, your funny little sayings and whatever and the way you present. There's no power in any of that, okay? Now look at verse 11. We're done. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. And this is the fifth mark of a faithful leader. The evaluation of his faithfulness and trustworthiness can be based on his consistency or his integrity. What do I mean by that? I just mean this. Paul would say, I'm no different when I'm with you or when I'm not with you. The words I write, 
to you are the words I live by, and I'll use those words with all their power when I come. And he's answering really their accusation from another perspective. He couldn't care less about their evaluation of his looks. And when they say, you know, he's, he's one man when he's here, he's a completely different man when he goes away, this man lacks integrity, there's no consistency. Paul just says no. Any person who makes this kind of accusation, let that person know and realize that what we are in word by letter, like you said, weighty, powerful, when absent, such persons we are when we're present. Paul's no charlatan. You know, he's, he's no counterfeit. He's no fake. The fact that he's been there with weakness, and the fact he's been, been there with kindness and gentleness with them, they're misinterpreting all that as if somehow Paul's two different people. See? He's the same man whether he's writing from afar or speaking near. He's the same man wherever he is. And, and what we continue to find out about false prophets, beloved, and charlatans and false teachers in the modern world is they are one man before the crowd, and they are another person in the private life that they live. And I don't need to point out names, do I? They love the crowd. They mostly don't care about anything else. But for Paul, integrity was Paul's benchmark. He didn't waver from what Christ had made him. And he lived just like the world said when he was gone from them and when he was with them. So here's a question. How, How can you tell a true messenger from Christ? What have you learned so far? How do you know? What's the criteria? How do you evaluate them? What we've seen so far from verse 7 through verse 11. Number one, you look at the outcome of the life. Look deeper than just the outside. Find out what they're like, how they, how, what their family's like. Uh, how about his relationship with his wife, you know? You look at the impact on the church over the long haul. Is there edification going on? Are people growing? Is the church more unified, you know? These false teachers mess the church up constantly. You constantly have to, to apologize for what the person is doing or saying, see? You look at his care for people. Does he serve them? Is he being poured out for them? Is he an example? Evaluate his concern or lack of concern for worldly methods and worldly approval and worldly looks. See, if he doesn't care about any of that stuff, that's a good thing. If it's all about the style, that's a bad thing. You look at his consistency. Is he the same man in church as he is anywhere else? And you should be able to see that. See, he shouldn't be so removed from you that you you don't know if he lives exactly the same as as he talks. And like Paul, in all places, at all times, he's the same man of God. Now, we're out of time. The Holy Spirit's given us... Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12. We're going to go all the way through verse 18. And it's just one more, see? And um, we'll look at it next time. And it's an important one. I think you'll, you'll enjoy it and, and be blessed. All right, let's, um, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Bow with me, just in the quietness there of your own heart. Well, Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're so excited to read it. It's, it's so wonderful to, uh, to listen to these things that have impacted the church for more than 2,000 years. We're so grateful for uh, its availability to us uh, that we can read it, and I pray that you'll draw us to it each day. We might know its power, know its, uh, understand what the Holy Spirit's about, what's going on, and we'll be able to discern error from, uh, from truth. You have so much for us, Father, and I pray that we'll be about that, learning and discerning and distilling the truth and uh, be able then to say this is singularly true because the Lord has said this is true and that we can rely on that and teach that. And then we have that sword that you can use when you're ready as you put us in the situation that we'll be in to say the truth in love. As Colossians says, seasoned with salt that we may know how to answer each one. That those in high towers captured by falsehood enamored with their own abilities and education that can be cast down, they can be taken captive to your son Jesus. So that's our prayer, and we pray that in this society we live in, with so much falseness coming out of uh, Washington and other places, 
it would just be faithful to not just exempt ourselves out because we don't believe that, but why this is important and why it's wrong. So it would be salt and light, truly, that you can use a city on a hill, a light not hidden in a bushel. And Father, I pray too that um, as we go out of these doors, we're here where the saints meet, but when we walk out of the door of the church, we go out into the world, the mission field. You've given us a couple of mandates. We're here for this. Love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, and to give the gospel to every creature. You, you preserved us for just this time. We're here to do those things. Yes, you know that we have to make a living, we have to take care of our families and all those kinds of things, but we seek you first and your kingdom and all these other things you take care of. And so, Father, I pray that we'll be those kinds of people doing those kinds of things, and in doing that, we'll be found as a faithful servant, uh, a slave of Christ, waiting for his return. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.